Well, welcome back. We're looking at chapter seven in the new biblical eldership book, Appointing Elders in Every Church. This comes from Acts 14, 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Alex, I know you've said this is a special text for you. Why, why is that? Well, I think in the last uh, time we were together, I mentioned this. This is where I started. This is the verse that uh, struck my interest. Why didn't he appoint a pastor over each church? Hmm. But here he has a, a body of elders. So it really struck my interest. And then when I actually started writing biblical eldership, this is the verse I started with. And I, I can remember even now going through all the commentaries and how interesting it was and fun it was mm -hmm. to just uh, understand this verse, the grammar of this verse, the context of this verse. And so I don't think I'll ever forget my uh, initial study of Acts 14.23. You start off with the significance of Paul. Just explain to those listening why Paul is so significant in this whole chapter. Well, almost everything we're going to study from this point on is going to be Paul's words. So here we have Paul's example, and we will have Paul's writings, and he is certainly the architect of eldership. So we need to know who he is. He is Christ's personally appointed apostle. He is the teacher to the Gentiles. Um, he was directly chosen by our Lord Jesus Christ to be an apostle. And an apostle is a special authorized messenger, an embassy, an envoy directly commissioned by Christ. So Paul was not just a missionary or church planner or a brilliant scholar. He's all that. He is Christ's apostle. I'll quote you on uh, the first page of that chapter. Because he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, what Paul teaches is what Christ teaches. What Paul commands is what Christ commands. Paul's authority to give written instructions to the churches is Christ-given authority and must be obeyed. Paul's gospel is Christ's gospel. Ultimately, then, Paul's charge to church elders is Christ's charge, not only to the first century elders, but also to all under shepherds throughout future generations. I love that. Yes, yeah, very important. Really, if you look at Paul and Luke, 50% of the New Testament was written by those two men. And he's the master architect of the vocabulary, the theological concept, defining the God and the church. Right. And I, I would want to say this, David, uh, this is why um, candidates for eldership People who desire to be leaders and teachers among the Lord's people, they must know Romans. Romans is the letter of Paul where he lays the gospel out in a logical, systematic way and the Christian life. And so it's so important to understand um, that he is the one who defines the gospel, he defends the gospel, mm -hmm. he proclaims the gospel. And how he organizes his assemblies is deeply interesting to anyone in, in pastoral ministry. We want to know how he organized and structured his, his churches. Yes. I mean, he's the one who gives us uh, the polity for the church and why people have to go off into their own uh, ideas. Well, I guess that's the problem of uh, obedience. So he starts churches. He organizes the churches. He gives instruction to those who are to oversee the church. 
and it will all come back to the great apostle to the Gentile world. We, we come to kind of a shift in the book, and, and I know you've said this, you've said it for decades, that really the, the secret sauce to biblical eldership really is the exposition. And so uh, I just wanted to highlight that again, that, that this is going to be the most significant and substantive uh, feature of really the rest of this book is, is looking at what God's Word has said. So. Uh, we're going to start with Luke's historical record and sort of get in the weeds there. Why Why is that important, Luke's historical record? Let me just jump in here before we look at Luke's historical record. I want to pick up on what you just said. Um, when I first decided to write this book, right from the very start, before I even put a, a pen to the paper, we didn't have computers when I started this, no personal computers, I decided it's going to be a Bible exposition. I'm going to take my reader through every single verse. I had noticed in reading other books, uh, it was largely um, from a denominational viewpoint, very little scripture or just uh, uh, text of scripture uh, written out, but no exposition. And so very at the very dawn of this book, I decided that's what it's going to be. And so I think that is what made it... Uh, to many people, an important book that it was simply Bible exposition, carefully, accurately done. I did not want to put my own ideas in or my own denominational traditions. I kept it to the scripture text. And that comes back to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. So since the scripture is breathed out truth, profitable for teaching, we ought to make that the centerpiece of the book. So looking now at, at uh, Luke in Acts, Luke gives a huge uh, portion of, of the book of Acts to Paul's uh, three missionary journeys. But why, why, maybe this is an obvious question to those listening, but why is this important? I'm curious to hear what you would say. Well, it's a momentous turning point in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of the first three decades. You have to go to Acts chapter 13, and there you see uh, these five people in prayer and fasting. We're not told exactly what they were doing, but I would say from the conclusion, they were praying about the Gentile world and the gospel going out. And while they're doing this, the Holy Spirit, through a prophet, tells them, separate Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have called them to. And it was the Holy Spirit who sent them out. It's all affirmed by the other men who lay hands on them, pray and fast, and they go out into the Gentile world, and we have a direct uh, proclamation to the Gentile nations and the conversions of Gentiles and the establishment of local congregations made up of Jew and Gentiles but later we read in Acts that this is the door of faith open to the Gentiles. So, from the book of Acts perspective, Luke's perspective, this is a momentous turning point in the history of Christianity from simply being Jewish to the Gentile world, which our Lord Jesus said, make disciples of all nations. So it's really a key time, and it's at this time we realize uh, that Paul and uh, Barnabas uh, appointed elders in these new congregations. You've got this great quote, I thought, from from uh, the great J.B. Lightfoot, uh, one of the 
experts on the patristics back back in the day. He said of their first missionary journey, the apostle Paul, apostles Paul and Barnabas are described as appointing presbyters, elders in every church. The same rule was doubtless carried out in all the brotherhoods founded later, but it is mentioned here and here only because the mode of procedure on this occasion would suffice as a type of the apostles' dealings elsewhere under similar circumstances. Comment on that. Yes. Well, uh, a big question that arises, particularly among liberal theologians, why don't we read about elders like in Galatians and uh, in Ephesians? Why do we have that only here in Acts and uh, 1 Timothy and Titus? So what Lightfoot is saying is this Acts 14.23 is an example of what would be the normal custom of Paul and Barnabas in planning churches. Although it's not stated later, it's assumed by this passage. And let me give you a perfect example. We know from Acts that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in the Galatian churches. We know that. Unless we deny the history of Luke. And remember, many theologians do. They say oh, Luke is... Uh, uh, writing anachronistically, writing back into the Acts story what was true in his day. Well, we don't believe that. We believe that Paul and Barnabas historically uh, appointed elders in all these Galatian churches. Well, you know false teachers came into these churches, the Judaizers, preaching a gospel of works, Torah-keeping. Yet, in Galatians, he never mentions the elders. Why didn't he call the elders out? The elders failed. Why didn't he say, you elders have failed and you have to do this and that? Well, I'm going to answer that later. We get to Philippians 1.1. But just very quickly, this again, we see the brotherhood and the one anothering. All the re believers were responsible for this failure. Certainly the elders were responsible, but they were all responsible. And he even says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In other words, he holds them all accountable for adopting this false teaching. So, you see Galatians, there's no mention of elders. There's mention of elders in Acts, and so people will go, see, Acts is wrong. One of the key parts of this chapter is, is focuses on this word appointing, appointing elders. We see Paul and Barnabas do this. Talk about this word for a little bit, this verb appointed, uh, which means appoint, install, choose, but Talk about how this word is so often misunderstood. Yes, it's uh, very misunderstood. So way back in the days of John Chrysostom and the very famous Greek orator and commentator, and many following him said the word means ordination by the laying on of hands. Well, the word means no such thing. Uh, the apostles in Luke, ha they have a, a specific Greek term for the laying on of hands. That is not the word here. And then others say, well, the word, its etymology is made up of two words, hand and to stretch. And so the word means to stretch the hand, which means uh, election by the people, and that the apostles simply presided over the uh, election of the elders by the people. Well, this is called uh, the etymological fallacy or the root fallacy. You take a word and you take its etymology and you say, well, that's what it means. No meaning is found in usage. That's a basic linguistic uh, principle. This word can mean election. It can mean 
choosing by the people. It can mean that. But over time, it dropped that meaning. And if you look at Josephus, Philo, and others, the word simply became the word for appoint, install, choose. Now, in the back of Biblical Eldership in the footnotes, I give all the references there in uh, the uh, writings of the Greeks and the uh, Jews where the word simply means appoint or choose. But look at the grammar. It's so important as Bible students, we have some idea of grammar, verbs, nouns, pronouns, prepositions, very important. If you didn't learn that in high school, I would say uh, get a book and go over that. wouldn't take you long. The grammar here answers the question, puts us on the right trail. You have a verbal form here, participle. The subject of the verb, the verbal form, the subject is Paul and Barnabas, not the church. It's Paul and Barnabas who did this appointing. And then you see the pronoun, them. It's not by them, it's for them. Paul and Barnabas appointed for them, the churches. So Luke doesn't really tell us the role the congregation played uh, in this whole process of appointing. No, there's nothing in this text that tells us about the method of appointing. Now, saying that, I would think that they would consult with them. Now, I'm I'm giving conjecture here, but knowing how uh, Paul is so uh, concerned about the congregation being a part of everything, they would probably have to uh, ask the congregation, well, who are the people you see doing this? Sure. Like in 1 Thessalonians 5, people right. uh, were already giving leadership. So they would consult with them. Uh, uh, they would participate in it. But that's that's just simply conjecture. Sure. What we do know is Paul and Barnabas appointed for them a plurality of elders in each church. That's all the text says. Don't read into it all these other ideas. Okay, here's a question for you. I know missiologists will ask this, uh, but how in the world do Paul and Barnabas appoint these new elders, these new converts? They seem to be, you know, recently converted. How how do how are they elders so quickly? Well, that's a very good question because in many conditions that can't happen. If you're in a society that people can't read or they don't have a Bible, well, it'll be a number of years to educate people enough to be leaders and teacher, teachers, particularly in their church. So I would say in each of these churches of Galatia, we see Paul start out in the synagogue. Mm-hmm. And many of the first convert, uh, converts were Jews. So these Jews get saved. And right. they already know the Greek Old Testament. Right. They know the God of Israel. They know the covenant-keeping God. They've already got years of education. Hey, how, how, some of them could have been elders in their synagogue. Right. But why don't you comment on Timothy, because that's a perfect example. Yeah, we see Timothy. I mean, obviously, he, he grows up in a, in a home. He's educated by his mother, Eunice, his grandmother, Lois. He, he knows the Old, Old Testament scriptures, but it brings up a great point of the continuity of, of the Old Testament in this story. Think of even Acts 15. We talked about that in the last chapter. Moses is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. There's this assumption that, that these elders would know the scriptures. They've been taught the scriptures. You, you even reference you know, Romans 15, 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might 
have hope. It's inconceivable that these elders would not know the scriptures, would not know sound doctrine. They're being grafted into this story, even 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse uh, 11. Now, these things happened to them, the Israelites, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So, obviously, these new converts had some context and understanding of the Old Testament. They were fluent uh, in the scriptures. They're part of this story. And so what, what's new is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. And uh, they have a whole new understanding of, of what the gospel is, the good news of the kingdom. Boy, I would think that they would have had great Bible studies at this time as they reevaluate <laughs> right. the Old Testament, oh, uh, the stories and the storyline of the Old Testament. Right. Um, they would now see it all through the eyes of the Messiah being here, and Isaiah 53 would come alive to them. But you know, Dave, there's something very important here. We need to know the Old Testament. Right. Our elders need to know the Old Testament. Can a man be an elder in a church and he's never read the Old Testament? What do you think? Yeah, it's the heresy of Marcion, right, of, of kind of severing off. And we see this today. I won't name names, but popular teachers wanting to unhitch from the Old Testament. Uh, this is a false teaching, a very serious error. Uh, you bring up another point here. It's a phrase I want to highlight uh, that Paul and Barnabas appoint elders in every church. Why is that significant? Well, first of all, you have what's called, uh, this preposition kata, which is called the distributive use of the kata, which means and should be translated in each individual church, church by church. So church by church, they appointed a plurality of elders. I, I mention this because... Earlier in this series, I mentioned this uh, speculative teaching that every house church had one elder. Mm -hmm. I always wonder, why is it only one elder? Why can't it be two or three? But anyway, they say there was one elder per house church, and those elders would get together occasionally as an eldership, a body, a council of elders, um, and then be over these individual churches, and you'd have a city church. All that is speculation. Right, right. The text says they appointed each and every individual church a body of elders. So that view, that speculative view of one elder per house church, simply contradicts this yeah. passage. They seem to be following the model of the church in Jerusalem, too, where you've got multiple elders. Yes, oh, definitely. Again, we've been emphasizing the Old Testament that this is not new. They were very familiar with colleagueship right. and a council right. of qualified leading men called elders. It yeah. wasn't new. It's new to some people today. Yeah, I think it's a great point that they so could have so easily appointed one person as the chief ruler. They could well, have easily set it in stone. They could have done it. They didn't do it. Well, um, you know, some people think the, the local churches were reorganized synagogues. Well, the synagogue had the ruler of the synagogue. Well, Paul never, and Barnabas, never appoint a ruler of the local church. Right. It's always plural eldership. Mm -hmm. So they weren't simply reorganized uh, synagogues, and they weren't simply following the synagogue model. They were following their new. Really, these men are very innovative. Mm -hmm. And they're uh, strategic in their evangelism, going to key cities 
and how they organize their churches, it all harmonizes with the doctrine of the church, which remember, Paul's the great architect of the doctrine of the church, the body of Christ. You see that in his, uh, some have called the crown of Paulinism, the book of Ephesians. So what they do on the local level in polity harmonizes with the great doctrine of the body of Christ, every member ministry. Last part of this chapter, you uh, talk about committing the elders to the Lord. Talk about that that Greek verb commit and what it what it means and why it's significant. Well, think of this strategic moment. They had seen these new fledgling churches established. They come back and revisit these same churches that they had established, and when they revisit them, they appoint a body of elders. So in other words, the churches had a little time to see the natural leadership come up and for the people to recognize this. So in a sense, when Paul and Barnabas came back, revisited them, uh, there was some information to give Paul and Barnabas so they could appoint elders. But they're leaving, and they're in dark, pagan cultures. Everything is against them, and the apostles are leaving. What in the world is going to happen to these people? (laughs) Well, we see here they're men of prayer, and they know the God of Israel. And so what they do is they commit them, or better, Mm -hmm. entrust Entrust them them, for safekeeping, They give them over to the Lord, and he means here the Lord Jesus Christ, and on that basis, they can leave with confidence that the God who sustained Israel for 40 years in the wilderness could sustain these men as elders of these churches. And they're praying, they're fasting, there's a sobriety, a seriousness to this whole whole thing. I think there's enough praying and fasting today among elders, Alex? Um, I think we all need uh, an injection of greater prayer. Uh, One of the elders uh, learning from Acts uh, 6-4 is that one of our major jobs Hmm. following the apostles is we will devote ourselves, notice the first word, to prayer and the ministry of the word. We usually reverse that. We devote ourselves to ministry of the word. Prayer goes hand in glove with the ministry of the word. Anytime I'm preaching, teaching the Bible, I always start in my own personal prayer confession so my heart is right Mm -hmm. before the lord so paul was a man of prayer barnabas was a man of prayer they wanted these first christians to learn prayer that's convicting and instructive for us uh as we close this chapter out of appointing elders in every church what what closing comments do you have for us maybe david we should make a comment on fasting uh fasting was added to prayer to show urgency, the seriousness of of it, the intensity. It was giving up the normal good things of life like eating to concentrate on prayer. It's a solemn moment in which they entrust the elders and the congregation to the Lord. So it shows earnestness and dependence on God. It's a a big deal. It's a big deal for the church. Yes. Yeah. And the, the end lesson, the end lesson, is the elders learn the life of faith, yeah. the life of prayer. Uh, it is a lifelong moment-by-moment moment, uh, process of trusting the Lord Jesus Christ 
for all of life's problems. And in verse 22, he told them, through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. He didn't tell them things are going to get better, man. Your life's going to get better. He tells them through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. How are you going to do this? Through prayer, fasting, uh, uh, Galatians 2.20, by faith in the right. Son of God we live. Yeah, elders aren't com they're not joining a cruise ship, they're joining a battleship. <laughs> yes, very good. Alex, thanks. This is a great word and uh, appreciate your brother. Thanks. Biblical Eldership Resources is committed to equipping church elders to help them be effective, godly leaders of the church. Please consider donating to the ministry so that we can continue to provide essential eldership resources for church elders around the world. To donate, go to biblicaleldership.com.